That lasted for a long time. You, you wish you got that, right? That's, I'm really excited to be up here with, uh, with just bringing the word to you guys today. And uh, it's, uh, I know John and I were talking about this. We went over this sermon, and um, I'm excited to present this material to you. So um, let's jump right in. Hope or truth? Blind optimism or factual reliance? Idealism or cynicism? Gifts under the tree from Santa Claus or from your parents? <laughs> There's no, the kids are all out. Sorry. The Mets are going to return and win the World Series? Yeah. <laughs> or truth? How do you know, how, how can you be certain of what you're hoping for? How do you know what you're hoping for isn't a hoax? You guys probably know this thing called internet, internet hoaxes, this phenomenon. You know that there's, there's articles, there is information that is passed around on the internet. If you're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, if you're on the internet, you, you've, I'm sure you've seen this information that's passed around and it's passed off as truth. It's, it's an art, it looks like a news article. There's entire websites dedicated to looking like a, a proper news, like a Fox or a CNN or, you know, those news websites, they're The Onion, if you ever heard of The Onion, that's, it's fake news. It's dedicated to giving out fake news that sounds, it has the ring of truth to it. Maybe you've fallen prey to it. Maybe you've seen someone share an article and you go, that's false, they got duped. And you kind of feel kind of proud of yourself, you know, like I do. Um, so I rounded up a couple of my favorite hoaxes from recent times. We're going to play a little game to start off, um, and I'm going to throw it up there, tell you what the claim is, and then you are going to shout out whether it's true or false. Whatever I hear loudest is the answer I'm going to take. So, Nancy, you can throw up the first one. The first one is Ronda Rousey, UFC champion, got knocked out pretty spectacularly uh, recently, and the claim was, there's an article going around the internet claiming that she fought off five muggers in Los Angeles after a night out on the town. True or false? False. False? It is false. Well done. You're cynical, you're not gullible. <laughs> All right, number two. There was an article circulated of a photograph that shows three buildings in New York in 1956 decorated with crosses for Easter on their windows. True or false? True. It was the date that gave it away, right? <laughs> Mr. Steve Jobs, when he died, he wrote, a, a, or before he died, on his deathbed. <laughs> Ruin that one, man. Wow, three for three. My own fault. All right, a Boston woman was allowed to wear a spaghetti strainer on her head for her driver's license photo because of her belief in the Pastafarian religion. True. <laughs> yes, true. Wow. Pope Francis upgrade, uploaded a selfie to the Vatican's Instagram account. This was a, a, tw a Twitter account, a post that was circulated. True or false? True. Ooh, this one was false. So that's, that's it. That, you kind of get the idea. There are these, you know, some of you are gullible, some of you are cynical. It's okay. We love you anyway. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, 
you know, and there's a whole bunch of these that I, that I, I shied away from. They, they cover all these hot topics, these political, political stuff, you know, Donald Trump, Obama, Muslims in the US. You know, I decided to stay away from those mainly because I want John to let me come up here again. And if I start a political fight, I won't get invited back. But as I was thinking about it, I realized that some of these stories, right, I read them and they make me angry inside. I, I know they're not true, but it makes me angry. And then some of, some of them, I read them and it makes me happy because I like that these mean things that are being said about this political person are actually true. It makes me happy. And on one side, I'm kind of happy, I'm relieved when they prove to be false. And on the other side, I'm kind of disappointed when they prove to be false. And as I was thinking about that, why does, even though we kind of know they're not true, they still hit our emotions? Why? Because in the end, truth does connect to our emotions. It trickles down into our hearts, into our souls, and it feeds hope. We hope that it's true or we hope that it's false. Truth feeds hope. So with that in mind, let's jump into this text that we're gonna read this morning from Luke. Uh, Luke chapter two, verses 21 uh, and onwards. Luke writes, on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel, to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So pretty straightforward, right? Mary, Joseph, head over to the temple in Jerusalem. They are just, they're following what the law required of them to do for their firstborn, their newborn son. And as they're doing that, this older gentleman, this, this devout, righteous Jew, who everyone knew he was always in the temple, comes up and says kind of some crazy stuff to them. Let's just, let's unpack that. Um, before we do that, if you've been with us over the last month, right, you know we've been talking about hope. And this morning, we're going to talk about truth and how that affects hope. Um, and I want to just focus on that relationship there. You know, how do, how does hope affect truth? How does truth affect hope? What do they look like when one is not present? Why do you need both? Because you do need both. You know, I created that false dichotomy in a sense at the beginning, hope or truth, but you need both. Hope without truth is foolishness. We know that when we believe those hoaxes. It's, it's foolish. It's, you look at the person who reposts that and you go, huh, and then you show it yourself. You know, it's, it's unwarranted faith. But on the other hand, truth without hope is cynicism. It's it's materialism, it's, it's rationalism, it's, it's the opposite of what John said the other night, that all I see is all there is. It's, it's what I can feel and test and, and touch and see and hear and taste. 
A small spark of truth is what fans the flame of hope. And in return, hope drives you, it, it compels you to go and seek out more truth. They feed each other, it's a circle. That's why, you know, Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says so well, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence, assurance. That's talking about truth. Through faith, we can know truth. And truth is what gives us confidence and assurance to trust in the hope we have, the hope we have in Christ. That's why Peter says, in 1 Peter, he says, always be prepared to give a reason in support of the hope that you have. Why? Because there is truth that undergirds, that supports our hope. We don't have a hope in Christ that is baseless, that is factually bankrupt. Truth is the anchor of hope, and hope is what then connects us back into truth. Just before I go any further, I want to make a quick distinction on, you know, I'm, I'm, we're going to talk about this word truth a lot. It's a big word that's thrown around a lot today. You know, in the last 50 years, it has kind of been redefined to mean that which is true for you and true for your experience. You know, a lot of times we talk about truth as that which you can prove factually, scientifically, rationally. All I see is all there is. When I'm talking about truth, the, this word truth uh, is, is what Francis Schaeffer called true truth. That which is true across all times, in all places, for all people. And, you know, of course, scientific factual evidence it contributes to that, but all I see is not all there is. So, Luke, in his gospel, he is constantly dealing with the truthfulness of his account. He's constantly laying out all of the evidence that he can possibly provide for us to show that we can believe it. it is a believable account. You know, he's writing to this guy, Theophilus, in the beginning, and he says to him, you know, I want you, I want you to be able to know with certainty this, everything that you've been taught so that you can have this hope. Because he knows that hope is only as good, right, as the truth on which it stands. And in a sense, he's saying, you know, you can believe this story because of the people who are in it. Look at these people. These people are normal. They're well-adjusted. They're civilized. They're credible people. They stand nothing to gain from this. And look at them. They believe it. I, I don't know about you, but I do this all the time. When I'm, you know, I've gone through times of doubt where I've, I've questioned and I'm wondering and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about my faith. Is it really worth believing? Is it worth the cost? Can I, can I trust what the Bible says? And I look around and, I, and I, I see someone who is a Christian who I respect. And I look at them and I go, they're smart. They're, they're not dumb. They believe this. Maybe I, can, maybe I can keep believing it too. Maybe they've thought about it, they've thought it through, and so I can believe it. Maybe it's worth the effort. Maybe I need to look into this a little more. This is why, this is why Scripture tells us to keep meeting together. Don't stop meeting together. Because why? Because we're, we're reaffirming the truthfulness of the story as we reaffirm it. That's why we sing these words that we sing. That's why John comes up week after week and keeps taking us back to Scripture. Because he's reaffirming the truthfulness. And as we reaffirm truthfulness, it builds hope. It helps us to place our hope in the one who can ultimately satisfy that hope. So how does Luke do this? Very, in a really obvious way, how does Luke do this in his story? How does he build credibility? And he puts forward these people 
who have this strength and quality of character on the other hand, and on, on the other hand, he, he says, they have strength and quality of character, and you can verify it. Theophilus would have been able to go and ask questions and say, hey, did you hear about Mary and Joseph and what happened to them? And people would have been able to give an account and verify the account. Let's just look at a couple of details about how Luke does that in this account. Um, let's look at Mary and Joseph first, because he deals with them first. What is it that makes him credible? To begin with, they believed that Jesus was who the angel said he was. Luke points out, verse 21, on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus. His parents named, they gave him the name Jesus. Jesus was such a common name. It's, it was like John or Joe or Fred. Not a very common name, but. <laughs> That's what happens when I go off script. It was, a, it was a common name. Why would Luke have pointed it out? Who cares? He points it, he pulls it out for us because it, it's, it's significant, because it's showing us that Mary and Joseph really did believe what the angel had said, and they believed that he was the Messiah. If they hadn't, they wouldn't have named him Jesus. If, they, if, if it wasn't true, Luke wouldn't have bothered to pull out that seemingly insignificant thing for us. So I don't know about you, but that, for me, that as I was thinking about it, that's kind of a good piece of evidence. Why? Because we love baby names. As people, we know that, right? You, your, you, your wife is pregnant, and all of a sudden you start going, oh, what are we going to call this little person in her belly, because he's going to pop out at some point, what are we going to call him, you know? We have top 10 lists of the most popular baby names. We're, we're following on social, what's, what are, what are the, the royal family going to name their next kid? What, what you know, we're, we're, we love it. And so, you know, my, when my son was born, we, we, or actually before he was born, you know, we were trying to figure out what his name is. And if you don't know, his full name is Matthijs Andrew Ebenezer Berry. Mainly, we wanted it to be so that no one could pronounce it. <laughs> what we really wanted to do was, you know, I'm, I'm American in English, my wife is Dutch, we lived in France for a long time, so part of it was we wanted to give him some heritage in his name. We wanted to have some, some meaning, so a part of ourselves to him. We also wanted his name to have a meaning that was significant, that, in hopes that, on some level, that he would eventually become, to re he would come to reflect those characteristics. You know, and so for months I would get home from work and we'd sit down at night on the couch and we'd, our conversation would go something along the lines of, honey, what do you, what do you think of Leonard? And she'd go, eh, you know, it's okay, it's last case resort. What do you think about Ferdinand? Eh, you know. And then one of us would say, well, you know, no, I don't really like that name because, you know, when I was little in first grade, there was this kid who had like a funny tooth that stuck out, and I don't want my kid to have the same name as that weirdo, right? Like we've all done, you associate names with people. Names are important. You know, especially in Hebrew culture, a name was indicative of the whole, the whole character of a person. You know, so Mary and Joseph would never have given Jesus that, just a name that someone else, that an angel gave to them, unless they really believed it. Luke goes on to tell us why why it matters that Joseph and Mary, these credible people, these strength of character, why, why does it matter that they believed it? And he goes on to tell us that he gives details about how they did everything for Jesus that the law required of them. Verse 22, they took him to the temple, they sacrificed a pigeon for him because they were poor, they didn't have any money, so they sacrificed a pigeon instead of a dove. 
They consecrated unto the Lord, just as the law required. In the Old Testament, just get a little technical for a second. In the Old Testament, the firstborn animal was consecrated to God. The firstborn child was also consecrated to God, and that sacrifice was, in a sense, buying him back from God. So Luke is saying, look, these people, Mary and Joseph, they're good law-abiding people. They're normal. They're, they're like you and me. They're just trying to do what God is asking them to do. They're rational. They're, they're honest citizens. You know, they're not, they're not kooks. They're not cultural outliers. They're not the Jim Joneses in, on the opposite side of the spectrum, the Charles Mansons, the Marshall Applewhites, you know. They're righteous. They're righteous. They believed it. You can verify it. So he keeps giving these details, that, reminding us this is a true account. It's trustworthy. And now up walks Simeon, this, this older man. Mary and Joseph, baby Jesus, they're at the temple walking around, probably in an outer part of the temple because Mary is with Joseph and that's where women were allowed. And they're walking around and somehow Simeon comes up to them. We don't know how it was that Simeon first interacted with them, how he recognized them. The scripture doesn't give us that information. It says that he was, he was, he was propelled, he was pushed by the Holy Spirit to come into the temple. I always imagine that Simeon somehow, maybe supernaturally, recognized, oh, that's the Messiah. I, this baby, he's the Messiah. I, you know, maybe they got to talking. Somehow they, as they were consecrating him, he came up and they started talking and Mary and Joseph started telling him about this crazy story that, you know, about the angels and the shepherds and the prophecies and, and Jesus' birth. And as they're telling him this, somewhere in the process, Simeon starts to realize that something's happening. He starts putting these pieces of the puzzle together. It says in, in a little few verses earlier that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the one who would comfort Israel, the Messiah. He's waiting, waiting, hoping. And so as he puts this story together and he feels the prompting of the Holy Spirit and he realizes that this is what he had been told would happen. He'd been told that he would see the Messiah before he died. And then in his joy, his heart overflows with these words. Verse 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Has, has that ever happened to you? You base your life on something. You're waiting. You're hoping for something. And then it comes true. You look at it. You look into it. You experience it. And it turns out to be true. You know, maybe just like Simeon, you had that profound, when, when hope and truth came together, they intersected. You, like Simeon, you had that profound sense of peace that ultimately led him to say, God, I, it's true. I've seen you, what you have told me has come true. I'm ready to go home. Like, that's, that is a profound sense of peace that can lead him to say, I'm ready to die now. I can remember, you know, when Renska and I first got married, um, I had that I just as I was thinking about a time when I had a deep-seated sense of peace. And, you know, the first year you're married, you, you think you're marrying someone, you know, and then you get married, and then you realize that who you thought you were marrying isn't actually who you're married. Because you don't, how can you possibly know that person completely? And so, you know, I, I fully believed that God had put us together, that we were supposed to be together, that we were married, and it was an amazing thing. But as I sat there, so there were moments in my, in my humanness where I started going, is, is, is she, did I, did I make a mistake? Did it, no. <laughs> Please don't tell me you haven't done that. 
If you haven't done that, uh, I'll be very surprised. Maybe I'm worse than most. You can ask Renska about, about our, my crisis on our honeymoon. That was not my proudest moment. Honey, I love you. All that to say is that I remember very specifically, we were sitting in our car in our apartment. We had this old 93 Peugeot 306. We were sitting in our, our, our parking lot, and she was sharing to me about um, what God had been doing in her life. And God, in his wisdom, <laughs> just reaffirmed to my heart and my mind, I'm about to choke up. You know, he, 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 this is right. This is the woman I have prepared for you. This is the one I've been, that I've been preparing for you your whole life. You're meant to be together. Because, you know, I'm, hey, I'm not perfect, you know, as we all just found out. <laughs> you know, but that deep, I don't know if you've ever had a, a time when you had that deep-seated sense of peace, like Simeon did, where hope and truth came together. You know, and then Mary and Joseph stand there, and they're, they're trying to believe what this angel has said. They believe it. They, and then Simeon comes up and affirms Jesus' identity, and that coincides with what the angel has said. And they're going, wow. It, it, there's more and more truth coming in here, and it seems to be true, and maybe our hope is not unfounded. So Luke places huge importance on the people we meet in this story. The question I, I logically ask myself is, well, if he does place importance on these people, why else is Simeon important? Is it just this, this interaction with Mary and Joseph? Or, you know, and what he says, of course, and we're going to get to that in a second, what he says is hugely important. But I think that Luke uses Simeon to point to the overall truthfulness of Scripture, the overarching arc of the story. The first words we read about Simon are pretty telling. He says, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. Let me just get a little bit technical because this is really important. In the Old Testament, the word righteous is used to refer to someone who is a true believer, who trusted God through faith, someone who knows they can't earn forgiveness on their own, but they have to rely on his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his mercy for, the, for their salvation. There's a key verse in Habakkuk that says, the righteous will live by his faith. Luke says the same thing of Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Baptist, that they were righteous. He says the same of Simeon and Anna. All throughout the Old Testament, there are men and women who are described as righteous. Abraham, Moses, Rahab, Joshua, Esther, King David, Jeremiah, Daniel, all of them, with the knowledge that they had, they trusted God to save them. The, the most simple way I've heard this explained is that today, you know, we, we look back on Jesus and we trust him for what he did at the cross. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to, they didn't, we have the benefit of hindsight. We know that that perfect sacrifice, his name was Jesus. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to a perfect sacrifice. They trusted God's promise, but they didn't know that perfect sacrifice didn't have a name and a face yet, but they trusted forward to him. And so despite the fact that the nation of Israel as a whole had misunderstood the law, Simeon was part of this righteous remnant, this small group of Jews who, as they strove to keep the law, bit by bit, he understood that the law could never be kept entirely. Because even though outwardly he did everything that was required of him, inwardly he began to realize that his heart was a mess, 
that the law could never be kept in his heart. I've done that many times. I, don't, I look at my own life and I go, oh, I'm, I'm good over here and, and I'm, I'm nice to this person over here and, and I, I, I do things for charity over here. And, but then I look at the attitudes, the motivations, the, the thoughts of my heart and I'm kind of disgusted. I'm kind of ashamed. You know? And that was, that was Simeon. He knew he could not fix his heart. Only God could do that. And so the keeping of the law for Simeon became a sign of, that he was not a way to earn his salvation, but a sign that he was trusting God, trusting God's promise that one day he would provide the perfect sacrifice, which would satisfy the law once and for all, which would fulfill the law. So this is where truth begins to intersect hope, begins to feed into hope. And this is, here's where it comes together for us. Luke points to Simeon, and he says, this is, it's all one story. He's hinting at this bigger story. It's all one story. The entire thing is one holistic storyline of how God reached down into history to place his son into a manger at just the right time. It's always been about trusting God for salvation. It's never been about earning it. God didn't change between the Old and the New Testament. He was never surprised. He never had to have a backup plan. Sending Jesus has always been the plan. Jesus coming back has always been the plan. He is so sovereign and so powerful that he was able to do all of that. And Luke points to this great truth that God is still in the business of working out his plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of hope that can be found in there. I spend so much time trying to control my life, trying to make, make sure things go the way, go according to plan, the way I want them to do, trying to follow my own agenda. But God is in control. He's not surprised when I get cancer. He's not at a loss when I get laid off. He doesn't get confused when my marriage starts to fall apart. He's right there with me in it and through it, all of it. And I, you, we can trust him. He alone never changes, and that's, that's why truth matters right here, right now for you and for me. Truth anchors our hope. When the hard times hit, you we can remain steadfast. We don't drift to the right, to the left, all over the place. And nothing, you, you guys know this, nothing challenges hope like a crisis. That's why truth, because truth and hope, they are hand in hand. So this central idea, this, this idea that Luke is, is, keeps coming back to you, the gospel, the birth of Christ, the God-man, is a true story based on true events, and your hope is not unfounded. Luke keeps saying that to, to Theophilus. It's true, all of it. These people, they're trustworthy. They're, they're credible. They believe it even when it's hard for them. So why does it matter? Why does it matter if it's true? What difference does it make? Can it just be a moving tale of a man who tried to change the world and inspires us to be, a better, to be better people? Jesus certainly seems to say some things that, have, that make sense, that, that play out well in the real world. The truth of this came, really came home for me the other day as I was, I've been thinking about this sermon for a while, and I love to read, especially fiction, science, fantasy, anything by Tolkien or H.G. Wells or you name it. Um, and I discovered a new genre recently, historical fiction. You know, this is the, right, the, the author takes a, a historical person or a historical event and researches it and tries to write a compelling story that sticks to that as closely as possible. And so I started this, this really good series about Richard the Lionheart, super interesting. The book is about his crusade into the Holy Land. And the author painted such a good portrait of the king, the man, the soldier, the husband, the brother. Very insightful and 
you know, as I, I was inspired by it. I was inspired to be, to be brave and courageous and to fight for the things I believed in. And ultimately, somewhere along the line, I started hoping that I could actually become some of those things. You know, I got to the end of the book, and I, I, start, I stumbled on a part that's pretty easy to skip over, the author's note. And as I started reading it, the author started telling me, well, here's where I had to deviate from actual history to make it fit with my story. Here's where, you know, I, I omitted certain events or certain people so that it, it, because it didn't fit into my story. Here's where, you know, sometimes it was a little devious. Events happened a little earlier, not devious, subtle. A little subtle because it, it, events happened earlier than, than they actually happened in reality. And so I thought that was really interesting. And, and subconsciously, there was something that kind of was bothering me and I didn't really know what it was. And so I, I went on to the next book, which talks about Richard's capture in Germany. And as I, as I started reading, I, you know, I was genuinely enjoying it, but every time something happened that inspired me, I found myself wondering, is it actually true? Did it actually happen? Because I had realized that sometimes the author was, was, was forming Richard's character and, his, and his, who he was out of very little information. You know? And so, like I said before, hope and truth, they're intertwined. And so when the truth came into question, hope began to fade. And so if the story of Christmas is just a good story, if it's just a nice, a fun, happy hoax, a myth, a legend, a philosophy, just one ingredient out of many that we use to shape our lives and our ways of thinking, then it doesn't matter whether you live it holistically, all of it, or you just take bits and pieces. You don't like marriage fidelity. Okay, toss that out. You like a good worth ethic. Great, keep that. All that matters is whether you believe it. It doesn't matter if it changes you or saves you. All that matters then is that it makes you happy, that it makes you feel better about yourself and about your life, that you, you're perfectly justified in coming to church and sitting here every Sunday and leaving and feeling happy and never being changed. But if it's true, if it really happened, if the birth, the incarnation, God become man, that mystery, his death, his resurrection, if they're anchored, if they're anchored in history, it changes everything. It means that, it means something more. It means that it's not just about me and it's not just about you anymore. It's about God and this huge story he's writing of redemption from the beginning of time. It's about Jesus Christ. And there's so much hope in that perspective. Larry King once was once asked, you know, if he could interview anyone from all across history, who would he interview? And one of the names he threw out was Jesus Christ. And the person said, well, what would you ask him? And he said, well, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin-born because the answer to that question would define history. What does that mean? It means that if Jesus was indeed virgin-born, then he was really man and he was really God. It means that Jesus, it's no surprise when he was killed. It's no surprise that he came back to, God, to life again because he was God. It's no surprise that he's, that he's now sitting in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And if all of that is true, it means that we really do live in a world of absolutes with right and wrong and truth and untruth. It means that there's another life after this one and the only way to know what that looks like is through Jesus Christ. So the incarnation challenges the very fabric of our lives, the very way you live your life, it challenges it. It makes, it's uncomfortable. And so hope on some level means we have to deal with things that are uncomfortable. And if you give up on the hope of, of, of Jesus Christ, you're going to walk right by great truths. 
Look with me at the second half of Simeon's prophecy in verse 34, 35. He says this. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Language is a little bit cryptic. I'm not sure that Mary and Joseph really understood what was being said there. We have the benefit again of hindsight. You know, and, and let me just pick out two phrases there. That idea of falling and rising. It's the idea, this is the uncomfortable part. It's the idea of a moral decision. What does that mean? It means that it involves right and wrong, good and evil, for and against. That's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, you know, whoever is for me, sorry, whoever is not for me is against me. There's no neutral with Jesus. You're either for him or you're against him. That's uncomfortable. I don't like saying that out loud, but it's true. It has to be true. The reality is that we're all born separate from the life of God. You can't be born a Christian. You don't inherit your faith from your parents. It'd be really nice if you did. It'd be a lot easier. The only thing you have to do to remain separate from Christ is what? Nothing. If you do nothing, we remain separate from him. And the marvelous truth, the incredible truth, is that God made a way through Jesus Christ for all of us. Galatians, Paul says in Galatians, you know, you have now come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. You can choose to know him, to place your trust in him, and in fact, he chooses you first. So Jesus is destined to cause the falling and rising of many. It's a moral decision. And that, that, you know, that phrase, it's funny because falling and rising, if you say it, it kind of rolls off your tongue a little weird because we're not used to saying it. We usually say it, rise and fall. You know, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. It rises and then it falls. We grow in power and then you fall. In, in your youth, you rise, and in your old age, you fall. But the gospel is the opposite. It's about a falling, a humbling first and then arising. You intentionally humble yourself before Christ and then he raises you up. Christ humbled himself into a manger. He humbled himself at the cross and then he was glorified afterwards. And then there's that second phrase, a sign to be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. The thoughts of your heart, the things you think but never say, the deepest desires and secrets that you hide there, that you think no one will ever see. We've all got those deep down those things that you think about in the, the still of the night when you lay awake. And we're good at keeping up appearances. You know, we're good at letting God invade the stuff, the obvious stuff, the stuff that everyone can see. But it's so much harder to let him take control over everything else that you think is just between you, yourself, and the lamppost. It's the things that no one can see. And the, but the truth of Christ is holistic. It's all-encompassing. If you want that hope, you have to take the truth with it, the uncomfortable truth. You have to apply that everywhere. It, it has to invade every part of your life. It's uncomfortable. So maybe you're sitting there today and you've been following along and, and you're going, okay, nice, hope, truth, whatever. You know, and, and you, you go, I'm, I'm still not convinced of the factual truth of the story, of the Bible. I'm not sure that Jesus really is who he claimed to be. I'm not sure that, 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 that the Bible's claims are true. My challenge for you is keep looking into it. It's worth, it's worth testing out their claims and, and, and researching and, and spending the time and the effort. It's worth doing that because, you know, maybe you're attracted to this community this morning because you feel the hope. You feel the joy, the peace that's there. You're attracted to it. But hope and truth are 
intertwined, inextricably so. You can't separate them. And if you want that hope, you have to test and accept the, the, the claims that Jesus made, that, that Scripture made. Hope is only as good as the truth on which it stands. And maybe you're, you're in a different place today. Maybe you are, you're falling right along and you're going, yep, great. Luke's account, true, perfect scripture. Yep, true. Jesus, Messiah, gotcha. I'm with you. My question for you is, what are you doing to foster hope in your life? You've kind of, you've got that basic foundation of, it's true, I believe it. It's, I have hope. But what are you doing in your ongoing life to foster hope there? How are you spending time with God? As simple as that. It's a relationship. How, how are you, what are you doing to allow the, the truth of Scripture, the deep truths, what are you doing to allow, to, to, to get those into your soul and to, for them to start changing you? The simplest way, the easiest way to start, not always to stay there, but this, the good starting place, I don't know how else to do that aside from reading it. Spending time with it. You know, you, 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 anything else, you buy a new software that you want to learn. You buy a book you really want to study. You spend time with it, learning it, understanding it. I'm not talking about knowledge for knowledge sake. That puffs up. That leads to despair. It leads to legalism. True truth, true truth, when you really, when it, when it filters into your heart, it leads you to hope. It leads you to Place your hope in Christ. Maybe that's a good test of whether you are interacting with truth and knowledge and all of those things is that if it's not building hope in your heart and building hope based in Jesus Christ, you're probably not doing it right. I just want to end with this. I have no idea if I'm going long or not. But let me end with this. You know, I talked about my son's name earlier and um, Renske and I decided that his middle name would be Ebenezer. That's Ebenezer, the French. Ebenezer means stone of help. In the Old Testament, you know, it referred to all of the ways that God had helped the people of Israel in times past. You know, when they doubted, when they were uncertain of, of God, they remembered him. They continued to remember him so that they could go, okay, he's been there. He's come through for us in the past. We can continue to trust him in the future. Ferenczka and I, you know, it, that name brings to mind all the times that we, were, we have doubted, we were uncertain, that we had to go back to truth. And you know, there have been a lot of, of times since we've been in Mendham that there have been doubts and uncertainties and, and we've struggled and we weren't sure. You know, when I first, before, I remember sitting in Amsterdam and I just finished Skyping with John and Renee and I sat there going, man, is this, is this really where God is leading us? I don't know these folks. I mean, they seem nice, but... This is a for, this is, I don't know this country anymore. My wife is an American. We don't have family or friends or a network there. We don't know anybody. I'm going to have to, uh, this is my first full-time job, and I'm going across the big blue sea. Is this the right thing? And then we got here, and in my first year, I got sick really bad twice, and my wife was waiting on her green card, and she was gone for five months out of eight, and, you know, she sat, she was pregnant, and over in France, and I'm sitting here, and I'm trying to get used to this culture and, and new work environment, and I'm not quite sure how it works anymore, and I'm, I sat there, I remember sitting there and going, God, is this really what you have for me? I mean, seriously? 
And the, the thing that got us through more than anything else, you know, there were, there was a, there was different things that, that happened, but the thing that we kept trying to come back to together is trying to remind each other of truth, of how God in the past had been faithful to us, about how the promises that, his promises that we had counted on, how he had come through for us in those areas. And we kept going, remember how he did this? Remember how he did that when we get really down? And somehow, you know, we were, we were clutching at strings, but somehow he got us through. And here we are, we're doing a lot better. <laughs> Happy to be here with you guys and blessed to be standing here this morning and being trusted to talk to you. <laughs> so truth and hope, they need each other. Don't, don't make that false dichotomy. Truth and hope together in your life and hope ultimately in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed this morning just to be here in this place and to share um, your word with my brothers and sisters who I've come to feel to look on as family. Um, Lord, as we go, as we look towards this new year, would you work deeply in our lives? Would you continue to make your truth real and known to us, that it wouldn't just be knowledge, that it would be it would be something that we experience in our ongoing lives and that that truth, that it would, it, would, it would feed into hope, that it would grow this hope, that the hope then would, would lead us back to you, to truth, that it would be ongoing and that we would do that together and, and by ourselves. And Lord, we love you so much. Pray these things in Jesus' name.